You're listening to the Venture to the Top podcast. I'm your host, Jasmine Sufnanen. I'm a financial journalist turned aspiring VC, and I've been building my skills and expertise in the space over the last year. The North Star of my career has always been two things. Number one, to always aspire and inspire. And number two, to give people the resources they need to make the decisions that best suit their needs. That mission has been the driving force in my media career, and now it's the driving force in my VC career. I launched this podcast because I wanted to create a space for you to learn from the experiences of top VCs and startup founders, and to help you decode and understand the industry. So maybe one day you'll launch your own fund, or grow a startup, or write angel checks, or begin your own VC career. On today's show, I'm talking to the brilliant Ashley Aiden. She's a principal at Vamos Ventures, but started her career working in capital markets at Morgan Stanley. She got her MBA from MIT Sloan and worked her way through VC at Dormroom Fund, Founders Factory, and Brand Foundry Ventures. Ashley has a wealth of knowledge that draws on so many facets of life, career, and working with early stage startup companies. We touched on all of those areas and more, and I think you'll walk away from this episode feeling extremely satiated because our conversation was so holistic. Here's my discussion with Ashley Aiden. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, and thanks for all that you're doing for the ecosystem, um, you know, the podcast, and really excited to be here. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to dive into everything with you. But first, I'd really love for us to start off by just talking about your professional background. Tell me a little bit about your journey into VC and how you got to Vamos Ventures. Yeah, a lot of zigzags. And I think, you know, zigzags make uh, people more fun, more informed, have unique perspective. Uh, But I uh, went to Brown undergrad and um, before Brown came from a very, I'll sort of take a step back and do the more of the personal story first, um, Puerto Rican, Turkish household. That's what happens when your parents are in New York. It's a melting pot of cultures. Um, Great spice conversation, you know, um, joyous moments on on both sides. Um, And so my mother was, uh, and still is, United States Postal Service clerk. My dad was working in buildings around the city as a porter um, and then sort of managing, right, um, different teams in buildings. And, you know, never really knew what this tech entrepreneurship world was until I started probably right before I went to undergrad watching CNBC and like reading newspaper articles about the American dream and entrepreneurship and that there was an awesome way in building things of attaining wealth, right, Um, and building a life that you really wanted. And so when I got to Brown, and, and you know where I started, uh, it was very much let me start exploring all those avenues. So I led the Brown Entrepreneurship Program. I was very involved with um, Brown Women Business, and then also um, founded a group on campus called Lady Launchers. At the time, it was this very grassroots organization community of women who are interested in venture capital and entrepreneurship to have a conversation on Brown University's campus. 
Um, but like any, you know, first generation college student after Brown, I was like, you know, what, let me get a job in finance and get a brand name on my resume. And so went to work at Morgan Stanley. I was on a capital markets desk, um, really dealing with different equities, um, mostly consumer and tech companies, really learned the ins and outs of markets and storytelling around public companies, but had that itch, you know, that, that I had to sort of um, get to with entrepreneurship. And like, yes, it was great working at a big bank and I learned a lot, developed a really great skill set. But my question was always, what happens at an early stage startup? And I didn't have that experience yet. And so I took a leap of faith, probably cut my pay by 50 plus percent um, <laughs> for more hours and went to join a Y Combinator e-commerce startup called shopteeks.com at the time and did everything there from like sales to business development to thinking about, you know, what would make investors happy about this company and what was on investors' minds. That was really sort of a great painting for me of this is what actually goes on at early stage companies. It's not always the glamorous like Zuckerbergs and, you know, metas of the world. It's not always, you know, the success stories. It is really a lot of hard work. And, you know, that was one of the best experiences of my, of my career. After that, I did a few different digital strategy, technology strategy type roles, always at the intersection of building, buying technology for consumers and making consumer experiences better with technology. Um, things like, so that Saks Fifth Avenue and Estee Lauder, fine line pickup in store, virtual beauty, you know, um, return in store, but you bought it from online, right? And so these omni-channel digital initiatives, meeting the consumer where, where she was at. Um, and then I got to business school and that's when I really started to think, well, what's a great mix of everything that I've done in my past? And it might be venture capital. And, you know, cause I had sort of the finance down, I had the operating experience down, more of like the st strategic thinking. Um, and that's when, you know, I started to work for a few different venture funds, leveraging my experience but really started to notice, hey, like only less than, you know, 2% of venture dollars was going to let, you know, black founders and even women founders, right? And so I really wanted to make a difference in that way, like coming from the background that, you know, I have and not seeing a lot of people like me getting funding, even though they had amazing ideas and sometimes even wonderful traction, most of the times wonderful traction, but were just forgotten, right, by the traditional ecosystem. And so that's why I sort of um, dedicated my career to diversifying tech, to, you know, being a capital allocator, focus on, you know, diverse um, entrepreneurs and then, you know, diverse populations in the United States and the solutions that they they need. And so join Vamos Ventures. Vamos Ventures is an early stage VC fund focused on Latino and diverse founders across health and wellness, fintech, future of work, sustainability. At the core, we are an impact fund. We think about things like affordability and access, wealth generation creation, job placement, better, cleaner world. Um, but we do care about financial returns and we're very, very keen and truly believe that you can have impact and financial returns at the same time. I am, um, you know, very much focused on sort of health and wellness and fintech. But again, we do a lot of future of work and sustainability as well. Uh, I know I threw a lot at you right there. So I'll stop there in terms of an introduction, um, but hopefully that's helpful. No, I love it. And I really love that you painted this picture of the zigzag because I feel like so often, you know, when we're college students, it kind of feels like we have this notion that our careers need to be a straight path, that we're like locked in forever, that yeah. we can't change our minds. And, you know, for some people, they do love that comfort. They love the idea of 
perceiving this type of security of like, okay, I'll be in the same industry for, you know, 30, 40 years, right? But I feel like now more than ever, we're seeing so many people decide to change things up. And I mean, I'm I'm definitely changing things up as well, um, going deeper into the VC space. But well, you mentioned having this itch to dive more into the entrepreneurship side of things. How did you sort of justify it in your mind at the time that this was a path that was for you and worth putting in the time effort and the work and even worth taking a pay cut for um, it was really really hard convincing like my immigrant father to <laughs> to be like hey like I'm leaving a brand name like Morgan Stanley I'm gonna you know go work for this random startup that no one has or has heard of but you know what I trusted that instinct and that's how I've always been throughout my life and my career, trust, trusting that gut instinct of like, this is the right time and the right opportunity for you. And everything sort of happens for a reason, as cheesy as that sounds, in retrospect, it does. And so I wanted to be risky, knowing that I was still young in my career and still had, you know, years and years of career left to figure things out of, if I don't do this now, you know, I'll kind of never do it, right? Like what makes me scared now versus like five years, right? And five years from now and whatnot. And so it was just the timing, the, the feeling. And I said, let's let's freaking do it. Um, and, you know, I did sort of weigh on a lot of mentors, a lot of my network to sort of think about, is this the right opportunity for me? And luckily I had a wonderful group of folks and supporters around me to be like, yeah, of course you're leaving a Morgan Stanley, but this might be the, the best thing that's happened to you or the best thing that will happen to you of uh, showing you another side of business that is building something from the ground up and being a bigger part of it, right? And so those learnings of being scrappy and being one of the first few employees at a company really did show me that I actually like working at smaller growing companies than working at a big established, you know, 15,000 employee type company because I had a lot of ownership, right? At a smaller company in something that was new and something that still needed to be built. And so absolutely, it was a very, very scary, risky decision. Again, I trusted my gut and also, you know, very much leveraged people with more experience around me to really help me make that decision. That's amazing. That's honestly, that's something that I try to live by. And I know so many people do as well. Um, just in trust, trusting your gut and being able to find those opportunities that are most aligned for you and most aligned for your mission and where you are in life right now too. Absolutely. And that, you know, that gets to another point of, you know, I often get the question of how do you navigate some of these like challenging decisions or maybe life events that happen. And I always am a fan of having those four to five people throughout your life. And, you know, they could change throughout your life, but like mostly what you want them to be consistent called your like champions of like, Hey, I have this really interesting life event happen or this career decision that I need to make. Let me go to like my panel of the four or five people that I trust the most from different walks of life, different perspectives, different, you know, even areas of discipline. And let me ask them like, what is their true take on this? And I want to hear the good, the bad, the ugly from them. Cause I want people who are real to me and that'll really try to, you know, promote me in the way that I think and the decisions that I make. So that's something that's been very important to me, especially as a first generation college student, not really having much or, or many people who've gone to college and who've, you know, built companies and who've been investors and who've been at big corporations to really lean on 
Um, I've kind of had to build that myself, but those people have been so, so helpful. And that's why I'm a big supporter of championship and mentorship um, in tech ecosystem, but even outside of tech ecosystem. For sure. And interestingly, something that I noticed that is super common and super prevalent in the VC space is this idea of community, whether you're a founder or an investor, sorry, or even an MBA student who's looking to get into VC. Community has been so pivotal in my own journey, and I've seen it play a huge role in other people's journeys, whether that's an online community that they join, like VC Unleashed or Gen Z VCs, or if it's an in-person community of just a few MBA students on their campus who are all going through the same things, all have the same goals. You know, it's, it's, it's really great to hear you reiterate the importance of that. It's kind of like having your own personal sort of board of directors for the trajectory of your career, really. That's exactly what it is. And community is everything. I mean, you know, take a look at the the focus of Vamos Ventures, right? Regardless of if we invest in a company or not, we think it's so important to contribute, to engage in the ecosystem and that, you know, Latino founders, diverse founders, um, you know, again, they're often overlooked and underserved from a founder, you know, profile perspective and even the, the, the end communities as well. And so, having a fund like Avamos Ventures that, you know, maybe we'll invest in you at the series A or, or, or the seed, or maybe the timing's not right, right? But at the end of the day, we're willing to engage, we're willing to make those connections, and we're willing to invite you into spaces where you get to know other investors, where you get to know other founders. And I think that's been very helpful for us in building this ecosystem and amplifying really amazing, you know, Latino and diverse entrepreneurs and in the companies that they're building regardless, right, of, in, of investment. And that's sort of what we're all about. We often say, you know, Latino and community are kind of like in the same, um, you know, are, are the same word. You can't have one or, or, or the other with, right? You have to have both of them. Um, and so it's very, very important to us, community. And community is so, so crucial in your early innings of, of your career and that, you know, you mentioned a board of directors or board of champions, which is, you know, basically the same thing. When you're navigating and you're kind of like unsure of yourself in your early twenties and like what to do, right. Having again, that diversity of perspective around you, I think really sort of makes you even more sure of like, this is true to me. And this sort of feels good. For sure. I absolutely love that. Definitely took notes on it. (laughs) Was there anything that surprised you about what the experience of being an early stage founder, working with an early stage company was like? Was there anything there that was surprising to you? I think it was more of this, like, you know, it isn't all glamour and and glitz. Like, it's very, very hard to build a company. It's very hard to find the right people on your team to you know, build a vision that that you have. And even more so on the founder side, you have to sell your vision constantly. And if people aren't sold on it, you know, turnover is going to be a really big issue. And so, you know, again, everyone paints the pictures of the Zuckerbergs and, you know, the Sarah Blakely's of the world, and they're wonderful, but like, they've had a lot of hard days too, right? And product market fits important and, you know, figuring out the market opportunities important. Storytelling is really important. You kind of have to be a jack of all trades being a founder. You're like building a company, figuring out the business model, figuring out the product, you know, doing finances, being on calls with investors. It's a lot. And I think it takes a certain person to, to be in that founder seat and also certain people and persona to, um, 
to work at an early stage startup. It really isn't for everyone, right? Like some people like structure and, you know, um, a view into what their everyday is going to look like, but that's just not the reality of an early stage company. You need to be willing to, you know, one day throw trash out and the other day, you know, be in front of a really big wig and investor. For sure. One thing that I always find myself thinking a lot about is how founders manage their personal lives while Mm -hmm. they're building what they're building. Because, you know, a lot of times starting a company can be such a sacrifice in so many other areas of your life, especially if you are bootstrapping, especially if you left your nine to five corporate job and you don't have any source of income to really sustain yourself. And I know that like Y Combinator and maybe a few other uh, organizations and programs do offer awards to, you know, founders who make it into their program where the money can be used for you know, whatever it needs to be used for, whether that's to build your company or, you know, work on some lifestyle expenses and things like that. But how, how common is that to be able to have this way of sustaining your personal life while you're building as a founder? It's very, very hard. And I often think about, especially the founders that we focus on and invest in, and that there's a big weight on their shoulders. You know, like, for example, if I was building a company right now, I would have a bunch of considerations, meaning, you know, my personal life, like my mental health, taking care of mom and dad as they age, right? My my little brother and making sure he's on the right path. And so there's so much more going on than I think than the, the meets the eye of, you know, you might see all these Instagram posts of people celebrating their companies and their wins and their milestones. But behind that, there's a lot of other things going on, right? And so take those with a grain of salt. Yes, it's important to celebrate. Yes, it's important to promote. Yes, like we should really be championing everyone that we have. But also, you know, take a step back and think about like, you know, am am I doing okay? Am I like, okay, up here? Am I okay over here? Um, You know, am I in a good place? Like, do I feel passionate still? Or is this sort of all for show? And I think oftentimes we have to ask ourselves these really, really hard questions as founders, as, you know, someone who's, you know, on, on the up and up and and hit her career even, right. Like be a little, uh, reflective, right. And be, be a lot reflective of where you are, um, why you're there, how you got there. And if, if you're okay, right. In other areas of your life, because if you're not okay mentally, if you're not okay and not feeling comfortable personally, that does take a toll professionally, whether it's now or in the future. For sure. And we definitely will, you know, kind of go back and talk a lot more about how to provide support to founders, whether you invest in their company or not. But first, I kind of want to start a bit broad and then kind of zoom in as we go along. So walk me through the process of investing in a startup from your very first meeting to a founder to finally closing that deal with your team. Yeah, it's um it's a it's a great process and we try to streamline our process uh to to be mindful of the founders. At the end of the day, the founders are the most important, right? And we want to be respectful to them. We want to make sure our process is easy for them. And so typically how it works is um we source a founder, meaning we find the founder building a company or the founder comes to us, we have an f- initial call with them. This founder um, or founding team talks about, and we ask questions around like, how'd you get here? What's your personal story? What drives you? What is the company that you're building? What's the market, the business model, right? The opportunity. 
Um, how, how do you, you know, how, how do you view sort of the landscape and, and where you land? How much are you raising and what milestones have you hit to date, if, if any? Um, so that's the initial conversation. Then we get to more diligence focused questions. And we probably do about three to four diligence calls where we double click on certain areas of the business. So we can ask a lot more questions on go to market on, you know, how the company makes money about, you know, maybe three or four competitors that the company has really getting more detailed in these questions. And then the final step in our process is something that we call an investment committee where, um, Everyone on the founding team or whoever else they want on the call meets with the entire Vamos Ventures team. And that's where they do a formal presentation. We have, you know, healthy Q&A back and forth. And then we get to our funding decision. So that entire process probably takes anywhere between, you know, three to four weeks on, on average. Again, we want to be mindful of the founders. And if they have a round that's moving fast, we would shorten that process up. But really, if you can tell, this is us just building conviction over time and getting more data to make the case to invest in the company, right? And then if any step along that way, we're like, oh, we're not sure, we're very candid and transparent with the company, the founders of like, here's what's giving us pause, you know, let's probably revisit a conversation when we have more visibility into XYZ. Got it. So what are some things that VCs typically look for when deciding whether or not a startup is positioned for high growth and something that their team would invest in? Yeah, I think it's on the business model. Like, is there a recurring way to make business? And, you know, can this company scale pretty, pretty quickly? Because venture investors want to see those returns. It's, is the team dynamic and do they have relevant experience to, you know, intimate experience with this problem? And are they like really burning to, to solve this problem? Is it something that, you know, keeps them up at night? And do they have a unique perspective and approach to solving that problem? You know, when you do competitive landscape analysis, it's often like, you know, Ashley's company is different because of this way. And, you know, um, Jasmine's company is different from in, in these ways. And so you have to really get very specific and detailed and really feel like this company is offering something completely, you know, new and, and innovative in terms of their tech, right? And then it's the opportunity and how big the markets are, right? In, uh, investors, venture investors in particular, want to invest in companies in really, really big markets, right? We're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, right? We need to see that a path with this company is to reach unicorn status, right? A billion plus. If we can't see that, I think it's likely that a venture investor won't invest. Yeah. One thing I definitely think I tend to gravitate towards is hearing, and you mentioned this previously, is hearing people's personal backgrounds. I think one question that personally I've seen come up a lot in the ecosystem has been, why is this founder the right person to lead this company to success? And I feel yep. like there's so many clues you can gather from those conversations that happen over and over again throughout oh. the process. I once spoke to a founder of a fintech platform, actually, where you know, in our very first call, I could tell he was really passionate, right? Which I loved. And, you know, fintech is kind of my domain as well. And he was talking so much about his mission to help people build generational wealth, right? Mm -hmm. And I believe we were both first generation American uh, students mm -hmm. as well. So, um, you know, he had this mission to help people, specifically young people, learn to build their generational wealth. And he was doing that through real estate investing, you know, and 
when when he talked about that backstory, that drive, you know, and how his personal experiences all came together to lead to this kind of inflection point of him starting this company. For me, that painted such a clear picture of where he's been, where he's going, and how, you know, this company is facilitating all of that and how he is dedicated to growing this company. Um, and I feel like that can go a really long way in the investment decision. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that goes back to sort of what unique perspective does this founder or founding team have? You know, we looked at lived experience, work experience. We look at all different, you know, angles of does this person have unique perspective? Um, you know, take me, for example, right, just in the fintech um, vein. It's, you know, for, for someone like me, I have to learn a lot of this fintech knowledge and terminology and ways to build generational wealth myself, right? And so I'm not alone. There has to be a bunch of other Ashleys like me that are sort of their first in their family to, you know, build this type of wealth and to, you know, be out there and to wanting to save and grow their money, right? And really have it for sort of years and years to come. Um, and so thinking about that persona and how do the, how do I make this person actually trust me and how do I, you know, speak her language and how am I more culturally competent um, to make her comfortable, to want to invest, to want to save, to want to grow her money. That is so important. And it's only going to take another Ashley to know and have that unique understanding, right. To build around that. So absolutely. That is something that is very important to Vamos Ventures, very important to me. You know, one of the first questions I ask in my meetings is like, tell me about you and like what drives you and we'll get to all the business stuff later, but I want to know, you know, what makes you, you and what makes you, um, you know, uniquely positioned to solve this problem. For sure. I absolutely love it. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about pitch decks. Um, not too much because I know we have so much else to cover, but I feel like pitch decks can sometimes be overwhelming to the untrained eye, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when you are a new investor, you haven't had as much experience. So what kinds of information on a pitch deck does your eye typically gravitate towards the first? Or what are you looking for when you first open a pitch deck? It's taking a lot of words and putting them into great visuals. I think, you know, the storytelling aspect of pitch decks is so, so important in that you don't want 50 numbers on a slide. You don't want, you know, a hundred sentences. What you want is for someone to look at that slide and be like, okay, here are the two, three, four takeaways from this slide. And usually you get that done in sort of the titles of like, you know, there's a, uh, growth of Latinx entrepreneurs in the ecosystem. You know, it's going to be you, the Latinx population of the United States is going to be 30% of the United States population, right? In a few short years, those are the big takeaways. <clears throat> and then you have graphs and, you know, some text to really support that. And so it's making it more digestible is what we look for. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, when an investor flips through your deck, you're probably only going to have 30 seconds to win them over, right? Even if you know, it's, it's a live conversation, right? You capture them in those initial slides and in that initial conversation or the start of the conversation. Or if you're emailing an investor at a, as an outbound email, you're going to do a little blurb with like key highlights, right? And that's going to catch their eye. And that's going to want to make them, you know, um, want a subsequent conversation. And so telling stories around words and around, um, around numbers and around graphs and synthesizing that is 
something that we look for. I think humanizing the problem as well, like something that I love to see in pitch decks is in the first few slides, is there a picture of someone that's related to this company? Is there a story behind how this company was started and founded? What is the personal touch going back to like the founder stories as to what the why is? And I love those slides when I see them. One amazing example, I always tell, you know, investors, founders who I assist is, you know, I was in this pitch competition once, like I wasn't presenting, I was just, you know, observing and taking notes on the startups that were presenting. And there was this one uh, founder who was a foot surgeon and Mm -hmm. her solution was basically redesigning the way high heels fit women, right? She was pursuing a patent for her design and everything. And right out of the gate, when she started presenting her pitch deck, she actually had photos of the feet of the people she had operated on, fours and afters, really showing the damaging effects of wearing shoes that are not meant to fit your feet, Um, which I'm sure as you know, (laughs) high heels are there there's a lot wrong with the way that they're designed for women and for feet in general you know um and that really garnered a lot of attention that really got people to stop and say wow like she knows this she's in it she has seen the problem she mm-hmm. has the solution this is why she's the best person to bring the solution to life mm-hmm. and another founder i you know had contact with fairly recently actually um he was building in the ai and mobility space And for him, you know, his solution really came out of personal experience where unfortunately he had been in car accidents and, you know, he was able to bring that to light uh, in his pitch with imagery and things like that. So it's, you know, I, I really love your point on being able to humanize the pitch decks as much as possible. But are there any yellow flags that you think investors should watch out for just when it comes to reviewing the pitch deck alone? Yeah, I think that, you know, I I think there's a, a bunch of different approaches to this. I mean, you know, it, I would say just flipping it back, like for the founders to think about who their audience is, right? And so if it's, if you're building a consumer company and you're talking to a consumer investor, that consumer investor will probably appreciate talking about your customer profile, like your go-to-market, like how is your brand different, right? Versus if you're talking about, you know, a deep or technical product and you're a deep technical founder and you're pitching to a deep technical fund, talking about the technicalities and the IP and like how the tech actually works, that's going to be more important, right? So know your audience. Um, you know, I think the the other thing that I see is trying to put a lot on sort of one slide, it's completely fine to voice over a lot of the important information. What you want to leave a conversation with an investor um, is this was a really awesome person that I just talked to. Like, I feel like I'm going to get along with this person. There's a vibe here. Um, It was, you know, uh, it didn't require much work on my end. It was kind of natural. Right. And so those are the types of on the founder side and the investor side that you want to be around because when you invest in a company, when you take someone's money, it's a long relationship, you know, seven, eight, nine plus years. And you want to make sure that you have chemistry with the, with the person on the other side. Um, 
the last thing I'll say about sort of pitch decks and, and all of this is you also want to have like a clear ask in your pitch deck. And then as you voice over, right. Um, your presentation of like at the end, like, what are you asking for from a fundraising perspective and what are you going to achieve with that money? And if that doesn't happen naturally in the conversation, an investor will ask you about that. So I think being forthcoming and preempting that, um, that question is really, really important. That's amazing. So going on to the more due diligence side of things, what types of information are you typically seeking as an investor and how do you go about gathering that info? Yeah, it's backgrounds of the teams where they, you know, the team members, where they work, what their unique experience is. It's um, how have they done to date if there's any traction and it doesn't necessarily have to be revenue. It could be like LOIs. It could be, um, you know, we built this um, wait list up. It could be you know, we built the product and now we're testing the, the MVP, right? And here's data from it. So it's data around, <clears throat> is this something that has, you know, momentum? Is this something that's resonating with, excuse me, the end customer, whether it's a business or an individual? Um, the other thing is, you know, talking about positioning and competitive landscape, again, what's their unique approach and like, how are they positioning themselves? And like, what does the brand stand for? What have they been known for? Is that scalable? Um, and then, you know, talking about scalability, ways to make money and really grow this business into a really big business. So these are the types of things that we're diligencing. We're asking things like, um, you know, let's talk to some of your customers and I want to hear the good, bad and ugly from customers. Um, tell me about how you view XYZ competitor and how you view them over time, right? As this company is, it, it gets bigger and bigger what are your hiring plans for the future? Like, you know, what skills do you feel like you have a gap in that you'd want to hire for? Um, you know, talk about, uh, you know, how the market's going and like the, the sell, how long does it take you to sell? What's the sales cycle look like? So it's all these different questions that we're diligencing and we're making the case around. And again, this happens in probably four or five, six conversations where we're focused on different areas and we're jotting down notes that then gets built into sort of the investment memo. The investment memo is the holy grail of we take it to the rest of the team and we're like, this is the case for the company. Like, you know, and I'm going to make a really big bet here and I want to, you know, have folks on my side that agree with me on the team. And then it gets into a sort of healthy debate. So the investment memo kind of comes, I guess, somewhere in the middle of that due diligence process. Yeah, I would say so. You're constantly working on the investment memo and adding to it. You definitely want the investment memo to be shared out before investment committee, where it's the final meeting with the company, because at that time, or by that time, you'd want to have momentum. You'd want to have, you know, folks' buy-in so that the investment committee is just like, hey, let's make sure there's nothing like wrong with the chemistry with these founders. Got it. So through through that due diligence process, how do you kind of balance, you know, going back and forth with the founder for additional information while also kind of keeping them in the loop of where they stand? Because I know that founders are oftentimes speaking to a multitude of VC firms all at once. And, you know, they're oftentimes in different places when it comes to how close they are to closing. So mm -hmm. how do you kind of balance you know, the need for additional information with making sure that they don't feel as if, you know, things are taking too long or like they are just have uncertainty and confusion about 
their You don't want to be vocal with the founders and be transparent with the, with the founders. You know, this is something that we pride ourselves on at Vamos Ventures is that, you know, everyone always hears back from us one way or the other, right? And we offer advice and help if, if even we're, we're passing at the time. Um, you know, for, for a very good reason and offer to, you know, get on a call or like write an email with specific tidbits as to what, you know, we would be looking for on the next round or, you know, in the meantime. And so um, every step of the way, and this is my approach, like every week I try to update the founder who we're in diligence with, with like, Hey, meeting with the team on Thursday, and here's what we're going to talk about. Or, you know, here's a remaining question the team has do you have any information that I could, you know, use to support the case for this? So I'm very transparent with the founders as to what we need and where we still have our questions and where they are in the process. For example, I met with a company last week. Our deal meetings are usually on Thursday at Vamos Ventures. And so I told the founder, listen, like we're going to meet as a team on Thursday. Here's what we're going to talk about. You know, is there anything you want me to highlight in particular? Here's what I'm going to highlight. And we're really going to try to make the case for you, right? Um, and so after that meeting, I would probably email this founder with their founding team with an update of like, here's how the conversation went. Here are potential next steps. Got it. So, but not every VC uh-huh. is like that, right? Like you have to, I think everyone has a different experience. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I, I feel like some, there are some funds that maybe have a little less bandwidth than others right. and you know, there, there are so many little things that can affect the way a fund chooses to go about interacting with founders and the other people who are involved in the deal at any given time. Absolutely. And I would say give people grace, like to your point, like there are a lot of great emerging fund managers that are fundraising, they're investing, they're, you know, doing HR, they're doing marketing. That's not an excuse not to get back to you, but I think just be a little patient with them because it's almost a startup in and of itself. Um, And of course, at bigger funds, like there's so much going on as well. And so it's not always, you know, the investor's fault. Again, I think everyone should be respectful and receive some sort of response. No one should be left hanging. But, you know, you don't hear from an investor in two weeks, like just constantly be on the grind and ask for an update. I, I would feel no shame in that. For sure. Absolutely. You never know where following up can get you. And I feel like even in the corporate world, that's something that we've kind of hammered home a lot where it's like, you know, simply following up, sending a quick email to check in can literally be the difference between like, you know, getting the internship and not getting the internship because you just never Mm -hmm. know what's going on, you know? Like, absolutely. And persistence is key. I think a lot of people get to where they are, all these people you look up to, you know, all these amazing entrepreneurs, these investors, because of persistence. It's because, you know, they've navigated the nose, they've never taken anything personally, and they've really trusted in themselves and their vision, sometimes when no one else can see what they see. And that's the beauty of building something, right? Is that you're so strong willed. And, you know, people might call you delusional or that you don't know what you're doing, but you trust yourself so much in this vision that you do anything to achieve it and do anything to prove people wrong. And that's where we get a lot of innovation. And that's what makes me really excited to be in this space is that persistence. For sure. I don't know if there's any graceful way to ask this question, but how have you developed, I guess, the skill of saying no to founders? Because I know that not every company will get an investment. Um, but how how do you kind of, ugh, I don't want to call it an art or anything like that, but 
basically, how do you say no, especially if you're someone who you feel like you've been a people pleaser most of your life, you want to say yes, you want to support in every way imaginable. It's so hard. And it's so hard as a fund that's focused on Latino and diverse entrepreneurs, because you know, we're one of a few funds that focuses on Latino and diverse entrepreneurs. And sometimes these founders think that we're their only hope, right? And hopefully that's not true and that that isn't true. Um, But it's very, very hard to say no, because what you see on the other side is someone like yourself, someone who, you know, is doing their best, is building an amazing company, is probably got like 500 no's before they came to you already, right? And you don't want to be the next no that dampens their energy or dampens their vision. And so, it's extremely hard, number one. Number two, it's saying no, but being constructive. You know, you don't want to say no and like, oh, you know, it's not the right time. And that's where you leave the no, right? It's no, but here are several resources that I think could be helpful to you. <clears throat> Would love to stay in touch on your journey. And here are some introductions that I could make that might be helpful at this stage in your company, right? It's less of, no, like get away from me. I'm too busy of an investor. It's more of not the right time. Still want to be supportive and helpful. And here's, you know, and I'm spending the time and here's sort of um, a, a plethora of resources that might be helpful to you in, in your company building that I think makes the no a little easier. It's never completely easy though. For sure. And I think that's such a great point to, you know, really be able to offer that assistance Um, And I think if anything, it can also kind of help your firm and your team stand out in a positive way compared to maybe firms that are not going that extra mile and saying, hey, not right now, but Mm -hmm. here's someone I can connect you with, or we actually have a network of angel investors who I'd be happy to put you in front of for consideration and things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, you know, sometimes it might even be like, just making this up. If you're someone who did HR consulting right before you were an investor and you're seeing this company struggle on building a team or thinking about like team management, you can be like, listen, it's not the right fit for our company, right? Or for our fund right now, because it's too early, but I'm happy to spend 30 minutes with you or write an email on how I would approach team building. Right. It's sometimes as simple as that. For sure. That's a really great point. Um, so when you do say no to companies, how do you kind of make sure that, and I guess, you know, offering resources is a part of this, but how do you make sure you end things as amicably, amicably as possible? Um, you know, that I don't think that's up. I guess it is kind of up to us, but it's also up to the founder. There's two people in, in the conversation, two people, right, in, in the relationship. And, you know, if we say no and that lands, you know, poorly with the founder and the founder has a bad reaction, you know, we email them back and try to give them more reasons, right? Or, you know, want to spend the time. But if they're like not accepting the no, then I think that's when things get a little tricky, right? And that's when we sort of have to drop off because at the end of the day, it's a small ecosystem. Respect is everything. And we never want to leave a bad taste in anyone's mouth. And we try hard not to, but could be like someone's having a bad day that day, right? And we don't take anything personally. So, um, you know, I think it's, again, offering support uh, with with saying the no, with, with saying no, that they're still part of the Vamos Ventures family. And that when we come to a city, 
where the founders are at, like we do a lot of ecosystem and community building events that they could still be a part of. And again, who knows who you can meet at that event? It could be your future, you know, CIO, or it could be, you know, your future, not CIO, CTO or, um, you know, CEO. It could be, um, you know, your next salesperson. It could be someone that you start your next company with, right? And so um, it's, it's a lot of that. It's a lot of like ecosystem building and community goes back you know, to our the beginning of our conversation a long way. And that's something that we can offer as well if it's not the right time for investment. Yeah, I really love that idea of, you know, that or rather that concept of taking the community and bringing it in person, especially because if you have a firm where, you know, it's super local or super remote, even whenever your team members are in a specific city or area, it's super convenient and great to just be able to throw out an event and you know have it be like a happy hour or even a mixer for founders who might who may be interested and you know raising at the time absolutely yeah and this is all like we've seen you know cases again where like founders meet each other they met each other five years ago they didn't even know they were going to start this next company and then they met each other five years ago and they just clicked and like the opportunity presented itself right and so that's what we're trying to build here at Vamos. It's yes, we're investing in great companies at the earliest stages, but we're also fostering relationships that hopefully can push people to the path of building really awesome, um, you know, behemoth companies that'll create generational wealth that'll then get funneled back into the community that then creates more angel investors and advisors and funds, right? It's this awesome life cycle. I love that. And I love the imagery of having that life cycle. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what we're all about. So let's say, you know, everything looks good and you decide to bring this company to an IC meeting. What happens after the IC meeting? It's a lot of debate. Um, You know, it's never like, you know, it could be like, oh, hell yes, this is awesome. But most of the time it's like, this is awesome. But like, here are some of our reservations. And it's like, what would you, what would make each team member comfortable um, to invest in this company? Like what's their one thing that they're still not getting? And so we have a very healthy discussion around that. We take about a day or two to have it marinate, to come up with our questions. We go back to the founder and we're like, here's still areas that we have questions about. What are your answers to them? We have another, you know, conversation. So let's call it like the four to five days after, um, if we're still like, you know, have conflicting ideas at, at the fund. And then hopefully we get to a place where, after these questions, after this back and forth, if it's not a sure yes, if it's a maybe, um, that we get to a place that most of the team, majority of the team is comfortable with a, with an investment. Um, that's a really fun part about the job is like this debate, this action, these different perspectives, someone's playing devil's advocate, and that's really healthy, right? Um, it better, it makes us better investors. It makes us think about things that maybe we don't anticipate naturally. Um, and so that's usually what happens after I see. And then again, whether we get to collective yes or not, we always keep the founder updated and let them know. And, um, you know, hopefully the the next steps are are positive. For sure. So let, you know, let's say that you decide to move forward on an investment together. What, what, what happens after that? Like, how do you kind of break down those next steps? Yeah. Well, we do onboarding um, and we talk about all the benefits of the fund from the community to the LPs and partners that we have to like, you know, vendor discounts to our thought leadership in the Latino area and like all of the great connectivity we have to 
again, executives, advisors, um, perspective in this space. And then it's up to the founders to think about how best to sort of leverage us. And we're sort of meeting with the founders constantly. I meet with our companies at least, you know, every other week, especially at the earliest stages to guide them and listen to them and feel uh, and, and see sort of where they need the most help with, and then take that back and try to help them, right? With things like go-to-market strategy with their fundraise for, for subsequent fundraises and really spending the time. So it's constant connectivity. It's constant leveraging our network and our know-how to really support these founders to grow really big businesses. And it's not just me. It's a collective team effort because everyone brings such, you know, different perspective and background to the team. About like what percentage of your time would you say you spend? Um, and I know this is going to be different for every VC, but what percentage of your time would you say you spend supporting the founders in your portfolio company? Uh, probably about like 50% of my time. It's very much, especially in this market environment, very much rolling up the sleeves and helping our portfolio companies navigate these challenging times, whether it's alternative financing, whether it's, um, you know, thinking about um, a long sales cycle, whether it's, um, you know, how do I connect with uh, investors who would, you know, take a look at my vertical and, and take a look at my product, right? And so it's it's about 50% of my time right now. Did you did you feel like, as, as an investor, do you feel like you already had a lot of the skills you needed to be able to support those founders in the way that they needed? Or do you feel like it was something that you kind of had to learn as you went along in your career? Um, It happens both from experience and what I've done in the past and then through living through it too. Like a lot of the answers you get is just seeing things over time and dealing with situations as you go through them to then say, hey, you know, Ashley, here's what I dealt with at this startup, right? And this is how we approached it, right? Or uh, this is how we did things at Morgan Stanley from a team building perspective. Like it might be different because it's a bigger company, but there's some elements, right, to, to leverage there. So I would say, you know, your prior experience is definitely helpful, but also the more companies that you see as an investor and the more you put yourself out there and talk to companies, the more perspective you're going to have to share with these founders who are going through a lot of the same things, right? Like product market fit, again, like employee turnover and just getting things set up and becoming like a really operationally efficient company. Mm -hmm. Do you think that new or aspiring VCs should try to spend considerable amount of time like looking for that thing that like helps them be able to offer portfolio support? I think just you know, I think that operational experience is is really important. And so spending time like at a startup or building something's extremely, extremely important. It's not necessary. It just adds additional perspective and respect of like founders see you as like someone who's been there, done that kind of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so also being able to navigate different types of functions and different types of industries, right. Kind of being like versatile like that. I do think, you know, operational experience is really important. If not, just being in the investing world or putting yourself in the investing world and becoming a thought leader so that folks really know um, or understand where you're coming from and what you're talking about and you becoming like a, a thought leader of on healthcare, on you know fintech, on future of work, and that you're reading and consuming this stuff all day and adding really interesting perspective. So either operational experience, becoming a thought leader, um, and you know, and just seeing a lot of stuff over time. Got it. What would you say are maybe the top two or three, 
you know, things that founders say they need the most help with, even after they end up getting the investment? Um, I would say uh, a lot of uh, the the early innings of like discovering your customer and making sure you're putting over the customer, um, early stage, um, team building, uh, thinking about how to, you know, build financials and financial projections. It's a lot of um, how do I find support in this very lonely, you know, founder journey. It's uh you know, how do I anticipate competition and project how I'm winning over competition? It's fundraising and constantly being on that fundraising grind. Yeah, I feel like founder mental health is not something that gets brought up a lot. Mm -hmm. I remember I did a LinkedIn post a while back about how burnout is particularly high among founders. For so many different reasons, right? Like earlier, we talked a little bit about some of those lifestyle sacrifices and the things that may be going on behind the scenes Mm -hmm. that can absolutely impact your ability to be all in on your startup, but also, you know, balance your well-being as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And again, it's important to be reflective and to, you know, think about, well, what am, you know, am I really getting all of all of I want out of this experience? Am I really taking care of myself? And it's a hard thing to do as a founder because you're always go, 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 go and execute. And like, I have to improve, um, you know, this company and this product and the solution and I have to answer to investors and I have to sort of put on the show, but it's totally fine. And this is something that unfortunately happens, I think, when someone sort of crashes of like, was it really all worth, what was my mental health worth it? And usually it's, it's not right. I would say all the time, it's not, it's making sure you're okay first and then building at a healthy pace. And if, you know, other investors that are in your company or advisors are like, well, why are you taking a personal, you know, day for yourself? Those are not the right people that you want, you know, uh, around, around you. For sure. Um, Just in like kind of thinking about, you know, founder support a little bit more. What what are some creative ways that you've seen, whether they're an aspiring VC, someone who's already been in the space, or even an angel investor, what are some creative ways you've seen those individuals lend support to founders? Because I feel like one thing I've heard a lot from like day one of my own journey was to always seek ways to create value for founders. Yeah. Yeah. It's leveraging, you know, a lot of what we talked about, it's leveraging that experience um, that you've had in the past to really lend a helping hand to founders, whether you spend time in finance or you spend time, you know, operating in the consumer space and no brands and no marketing. It's taking all that experience and hopefully sitting down with the founder and saying, here's what you know, I have intimate experience with, let's do a working session on marketing. Let's do a working session on building your pro forma. Let's do a working session on, um, you know, how to really understand your customer and get data around this customer. So um, that's sort of how you bring your value out to the table, along with constantly just being out there and networking and, you know, trying to connect the dots of like this investor wants to meet this founder or, you know, that person just left this big tech company and is looking for their next technical role, right? And being sort of like a, a super connector, I think is very, very value add as well. And of course, going back to that thought leadership piece, <clears throat> being a thought leader in a space so that people come to you and you have that unique perspective that you can share with founders building in all these different areas. 
I can absolutely attest to that piece on the value of being a connector and being connected as well, because I feel like I, you know, did when I like came into this, it was like, I've been networking and connecting like I've never been before, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the, that's the game of, of tech and this ecosystem. It's networking. It's putting yourself out there. It's surrounding yourselves with really smart people, whether you're an investor or a founder or an operator, right? It's, there's opportunity in being present and being engaged. And that's something that I think that we always need to sort of um, be on and, you know, develop true meaningful relationships that aren't transactional because who knows where, where they'll go. Right. Mm-hmm. So just to wrap things up a little bit, is there anything that you think founders can really do, regardless of whether they're currently fundraising or considering fundraising, is there anything you think they can do to sort of, you know, create their success and ensure the absolute most success possible for their companies? Yeah, I think it's knowing who you're going out to when you're fundraising and like having a curated list of investors that just get your business model, understand, you know, where the opportunity is, knows the language of like what you're building, right? Don't go to a generalist investor if that's something that, you know, if the, the area of where you're building is not something that they've ever invested in before. Um, develop deep and meaningful relationships on the founder and investor side. On the founder side, you can leverage a lot of the knowledge, right? In that pool of folks who've talked to different investors who've built in certain ways. On the investor side, it's getting the intel as to what different investors look for and the questions they ask and the data that they're looking for, right? Um, And the last thing I'll say is like, be unique to you and true to you. And I know we've mentioned that a couple of times in this conversation, but trust your gut and you're going to hear a lot of no's before you hear, you know, that one yes, that makes all the difference. And that's all that matters is finding that one believer, regardless of how many like shots you take on goal, something's going to hit eventually and someone's going to believe in it. Ashley, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And again, thank you all for all that you're doing with, with the podcast. Of course. Tell us where we can find you online. You can find me uh, actually uh, via my email address. So Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y at VamosVentures.com and also on LinkedIn. I'm not so active on Twitter. Unfortunately, I'm like the outlier of VC that doesn't really use Twitter. So email or LinkedIn. And then if you want to follow the fund, VamosVentures.com. If you made it this far, I want to thank you for starting your week with the Venture to the Top podcast. My only ask is that you help others discover this show by rating and subscribing to the podcast. It also helps a ton if you share this episode with a friend who you know will enjoy it. Don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter so you can stay updated on the show and so we can keep the conversation going. If you want to be a guest on this podcast or know someone who does, pitch to me at VentureToTheTopPodcast at gmail.com. I'm your host, Jasmine Suknanen, and I'll catch you in the next episode.